Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. A podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Tel Luca. Welcome Welcome to to the the Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Thinking Practitioner. I'm Whitney Lowe, and joined today by my co-host, Tel Luca. And uh, we're going to hear first off from our sponsor for today's message from Books of Discovery. Books of Discovery might be best known for producing Trail Guide to the Body, but we're also a whole lot more. We bring you the clinical learning tools you need to inform your intentional body work. Check out our kinesiology, pathology, and A&P texts. They not only build the foundation upon which great educators like Till and Whitney rely, but will also support you through your entire career. Books of Discovery is proud to support the thinking practitioner, and are offering a 15% discount when a listener enters thinking at the booksadiscovery.com checkout page. Enjoy the show. Okay, welcome everyone, and uh, how are you doing today, Till? It's a good day. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to our topic here. Looking forward to diving in. Great. We're going to be looking at some issues related to uh, sacroiliac challenges today, and this is certainly one that can take us way off in the weeds because there's a lot of things going on here. A lot of things going on with the SI joints. Hey, I had an idea. Why don't we try doing the whole podcast without saying the letter A? Yeah, I got your little thing on uh, Facebook the other day. Uh, made a little contribution to that. I think you were impressive. It Is that all right? Yeah. <laughs> you were awesome. You did a yeah. whole thing without the letter A at all. Right. Uh, for our listeners, tell them what we're talking about. Oh, here, there, so was, there was referring. a Facebook post, yeah, with uh, somebody's question Can you write a whole paragraph without the letter A? And Whitney aced it. Uh-huh. You got a good one. Yeah, so of course I had to, like, you know, I should have been doing all kinds of other stuff, but I was like, oh, I got to do this. <laughs> right. I stayed up late last night, like, oh, I'm going to make something good here. Of so, course, I was busy yeah. prepping for the podcast. Right. Sorry, you were doing your homework. I was procrastinating. <laughs> so, on, my, uh, on my Facebook post, right. Right, yeah. So tell me, what do you think about the, uh, the SI joints? This is a complex uh, issue here. And um, one of the questions that I know we get a lot as practitioners, um, you know, especially for those who may not have dealt into looking at the, the complex biomechanics in this region a lot, you know, how, how might we know that the SI joints could be involved in pain conditions or, or various dysfunctions that our clients are presenting with? Well, that's a key question. How do we know that it's the SI joint when someone hurts? And I guess got to say at the beginning here, this is one of the areas in their body where there is so much controversy about what's going on and yeah. diametrically opposed models of, of what's happening and then how to help it too. And a lot of us were trained in one way and now we're uh, reevaluating that, those points of view and looking at different options. But back to the clients, I mean, really what counts is what we do with our clients or patients who come in. And your question, how do we know if the SI joint might be involved when they have pain? You know, there's there's pain provocation tests that you can do. And maybe I might pick your brain about some of those. I got a few I use myself. But anytime someone has low back pain, I'm noting in the back of my head, maybe the SI is involved. In fact, you know, the, the studies say up to 30% of the time the low, the uh, SI joint will be pain will be experienced as low back pain. 
Yeah, I ran into that too. With uh, there was a couple of studies that we were both looking at for um, our discussion today, and I was quite surprised at the how high those statistics were of the relationship of, of SI joint pain with the common low back problems. Because uh, I mean, that certainly makes it more difficult in the the non specificity that people feel of yes. trying to say, oh, you know, like well, it just kind of hurts, you know, kind of this whole general area, and they're sort of you know, rub over their whole. Uh, low back and lumbosacral region without really being able to pinpoint anything. And, and uh, I think that's one of the things that, that makes it particularly difficult to chase down. That's classic. Someone says, my back hurts. And then when I finally get them to point to it, I don't know where they're going to point. I don't know if that means their shoulder or all the yeah. way down to their buttock. It could be anywhere. Yeah. There. But yeah, anytime there's low back pain, I think to myself, okay, is the SI involved? And you mentioned reading that in one of our papers. I remember years ago, some of the early experiments were around nerve blocks where they would actually numb out the SI joint and see how many uh, cases of back pain went away with just that intervention. Mm-hmm. And that was like about 10%. Yeah. So that was that, yeah. that was the statistic we all quoted for a while. About 10% of back pain seems to have an SI origin. Now they're saying like up to 30%. Different authors are saying that much. So yeah, low back pain. A lot of times people will experience it as hip pain. Too, an SI, mm-hmm. uh, a sensitive SI, sensitized SI, pelvic pain, could be down the leg. It's a generalized uh, zone, like you said, generalized symptom. But the yeah. SI joint could be a contributor to any of those yeah. kind of complaints. You know, one of the things that struck me from those papers in that particular statistic, because that statistic did appear in a couple of different papers that I was looking at, and um, they would go on to say through those papers that they have such a difficult time accurately identifying when the sacroiliac joint is a a component part of something or what actually is causing the pain in many SI joint problems. So it made me wonder if that's really true and they have such difficulty pinpointing it, how do they know that really is present in that many, that large number of back pain complaints if we have such a difficult time isolating those things? And I think it just, it illustrates the real quagmire that we often find ourselves in of trying to piece these things into separate pieces and say, you know, what part of this is is SI joint, what part of it is low back pain, and how are they independent or how are they related so many times? Great question. I know the the 10% thing that came from the nerve blocks was later debated. People said, no, you can't actually be that specific with the nerve block to just get the SI out of it. So yeah, all of these statistics end up being debated. And yeah. usually where it gets to is like, there's a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. There's a lot of uncertainty. So what, you know, what have you come across in terms of identifying the, what are sort of the causes of SI joint pain predominantly? Well, it, classically, you know, as a rolfer, I was trained that if the SI hurts, to look at whole body involvement and look at integration and alignment. could be a gait issue. Mm-hmm. And it was assumed that if there was some sort of asymmetrical pattern going on, that that was probably a contributor to the SI pain. Actually, you know, in that point of view, we're less concerned about pain than we were about alignment or rather integration for its own sake. But the but that model that if there is some pain, then we look to the alignment of the body comes, you know, partly out of the osteopathic tradition. And mm-hmm. chiropractors yeah. have similar kind of ideas where it's like there's an optimal position that we're comparing things to and looking to see if they match. And if they don't, then we we use that as a working strategy to go after someone's pain. Yeah, yeah. So, There's um, you know, a couple of things that I had seen too in some of these uh, papers that were trying to categorize the causes of these different pain uh, 
sort of pain generators, if we if we can say that, and really breaking them up into two two main categories. One category uh, essentially being a a true, like you said, mechanical dysfunction or pathology of the sacroiliac joint, whether that is you know the fact uh, anatomically this is an unusual joint in that we usually think of the the moving joints of our body is is ones where there's a nice smooth gliding surface in between the two contacting bones and really at the sacroiliac joint we have a much different anatomical arrangement because there's this sort of uh, interlocking ridge and depression process that kind of locks those two bones into position and when they're slightly off that's a mechanical thing that seems like it would be a generator of pain sensations for the sacroiliac joint. You're saying when and they uh, don't, the theory is that when they don't fit quite right or when they yeah. fit too too tight? Well, it could be both. Uh, you know, Ideally, there should be some degree of mobility in there, and we'll get into this in a little bit, talking about how much mobility there really is there. But they've mentioned you know, there could be hypermobility, which is too much mobility, and that could lead to pain problems, as could not enough mobility. But, you know, because this is a joint that tends to sort of lock into position as it uh, transmits the entire body weight of the upper body down to the lower extremity, and remember the sacrum is really wedged in between the two halves of the pelvis there, so it is kind of a pretty tight fit in there. And all of our Bones are covered by the periosteum, which is one of the most pain-sensitive tissues in the body. So even a little bit of irritation of those contact surfaces could be a pain generator in there. So that being a primary pain generator in the other category would be uh, SI joint pain of other some other origin that seems to be referred to that whole area. Okay, so you're talking, let's break it down a little bit. You're saying there's local structures there within the joint that could be sensitive and generating nociceptive signals. Like the hyaline cartilage, not the hyaline cartilage, rather the bone could actually do that. You're yeah. saying the ligaments around it, or soft tissues, or joint capsule could all do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, uh, that, so that's that. what causes that. So generates the nociception. But then now here's where I I want to let you make your points, but I'm I'm already tempted to jump in and start uh, uh, throwing out some of the debates. Yeah. Because good. yeah, the the debates are whether they're the role of external influences on that joint, whether something mm-hmm. like posture or use or position is a primary generator pain or if it's irrelevant or whether hypermobility causes pain or doesn't or whether it's too tight that causes pain or doesn't all those things are debates interestingly enough and I don't want to muddy the waters because I want to take it step by step and really get to what I've found and hear what you found to be most useful but I just want to note that as we go yeah and I think you know you're you're touching on something that's really pertinent because a lot of times I think especially in, in the SI joint region here we end up sort of chasing our tail sometimes and and this becomes almost a chicken and egg thing like is the movement dysfunction the driver of the SI joint pain or is the movement dysfunction the reaction to the SI joint pain that's that's causing it and then you know is that perpetuating thing so that's right uh, and there's therapeutic narratives for both and it turns out there's evidence for both yeah so what so I mean uh, where do you want to go from there I'm curious about how you work with that or do you want to keep unfolding like uh, some of these debates and dynamics around the pain? Well, 
You know, from one of the things that I want to, to touch base on is something that you referenced a moment ago in talking about to some of the, the methods that are used to evaluate this, because yeah. there's, that's one of the biggest controversies that I think that we come across here is okay. the, in, in recent years, the debate about how accurate are many of the evaluation methods that are used to identify SI joint dysfunction. So there's a quite a number of special orthopedic tests. There's a lot of you know posture and palpation movement uh, evaluation things most of which have come under pretty significant scrutiny as not being so accurate. So I think that, you know, we're kind of back to a question like, well, how do we know, you know, if there's a movement problem? Yeah, you're talking about positional assessments where, like, is one ASIS higher than the other or that kind of thing? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, and the the translational um, positional problems, the upslips, the pelvic rotations and the things like that 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 may affect that particular region. So. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of those things have, have come into significant question for how relevant are they and how much should we keep using them. That's right. And the, the objections there are, one, they don't seem to correlate with pain. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't find a bunch of people with uh, crooked pelvises and say they hurt more. It turns out they don't. Except, yeah. except, there's one exception that's pregnant women. Right. Uh-huh. But we'll get to that in a second. So position doesn't seem to correlate with pain. Movement doesn't seem to correlate with pain. So you mentioned hypermobility. Well, it turns out yeah. that there's actually no evidence, no convincing evidence, which is what the quote that I'm reading in these papers we looked, that uh, hypermobility is related to pain, in, except in these subset of uh, postpartum and pregnancy cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even there, so we better go there, even there, the hypermobility question is linked to differences left and right. Yeah. So this is Damon. And- yeah, and I think, you know, we're we're really uh, facing this challenge of, like, when we talk about hypermobility in this area, how accurate are we really at identifying that? Because most of uh-huh. the, the more current research has said, you know, that the, the accuracy of palpating landmarks and being able to feel motion uh, accurately through manual investigation is pretty poor, like really right. poor, actually. And lots of, you know, I've seen lots of practitioners, you know, place their hands uh, on the pelvis well, say like, well, here you feel this particular upslip or you can feel the, the sacrum tilting here this particular way if you do that. But I think we're, we're really wading deeply into that world of um, palpatory, what is that term? Palpatory paradoxia. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, there's, you know, the argument goes like this. Someone uh, says you can't really palpate that. The, the palpator says, well, you're just not good enough. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, but, there's something to that, and yet yeah. a lot of these tests. This I don't think anything's been studied as much in this realm either as the SI joint or the pelvis. Well, it turns out that independent of of radar experience or skill, that the evidence kind of supports what you're saying. That it's hard for two practitioners to get uh, very accurate agreement on what's going on in a lot of these positional tests. Yeah, some are better than others, and mm-hmm. you can dial them down to like a straight translation test. Under certain conditions, you can get pretty good inter-rater reliability. But then, guess what? It turns out that doesn't even relate to pain either. Yeah. So, right. but oh, by, by and large, the palpation, uh, especially of position, yeah, it's hard to get agreement, both with you know other people and with yourself. The next time you go back and check it, the yeah. inter-later. And so, yeah, that besides the fact that the movement doesn't seem to correlate with pain, the uh, palpatory inaccuracy is the other main argument that's made against that traditional way of working with SI joint pain. Yeah. And I think, too, there's some 
uh, I see periodically to some fundamental misunderstandings about biomechanics, about sacroiliac biomechanics creeping into some of these discussions where um, people will sort of exaggerate a little bit of what really is happening mechanically at the SI joint by talking about um, you know, a sacrum that has, you know, tilted and rotated, you know, a certain degree and, and these, you know, or this particular, maybe it's a leg length discrepancy or so, or a pelvic tilt that's tilting the sacrum a certain way or something like that. Yeah. But it's important that we, I think, remember the SI joint only has about four degrees of tilting forward and back motion or you know, somewhere in that ballpark range. It's really, really small. Well, let me um, put it this way. I'm interrupting. I'm sorry, but yeah. that at least that's the most commonly cited number. There's actually yeah. a whole lot of different numbers that every author is convinced is accurate yeah. about that. And they range, I did a kind of survey when I wrote my book, they range from everything from two-tenths of a millimeter up to eight millimeters of translation. Wow. I wonder how, I wonder how that translates into degrees of, of movement. For angular motion, for degrees, yeah. it, goes, it goes from a fraction of one degree up to 30 degrees. Really? There's one study 30. that shows, yeah, 30 degrees of movement. This was in warmed up gymnasts who uh -huh. could nutate their sacrums, you know, tilt yeah. their sacrums within their pelvis 30 degrees. 30 degrees yeah. is as much as one hour on a clock face. Yeah. So, That's interesting. Yeah. Uh -huh. But no, you, that four degree number you quoted, you'll read that a lot of places. Yeah. A right. Lot of places, yeah. Which is pretty small. Right. Four degrees is like, that would be tough to tell, especially through clothing, or especially through tissue and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, backing up just a little bit, because you, you mentioned a term a moment ago, and I just want to, to clarify that maybe for yeah. some of our listeners who may not be familiar with the term of, of nutation and oh, yeah. counter-nutation. Can you um, touch base on that a little mm -hmm. bit of what that is in reference to? Nutation is the term that refers to movement or tilting of the pel uh, the sacrum rather within the pelvis. It's Latin for nodding. It's the uh, sacrum itself rotating within the uh, ring of the pelvis, so it's it's a angular or rotating motion at the SI joints. Yeah, and an important thing I think for us to also consider and remember is that both nutation and counter-nutation are um, in reference to movement of the sacrum in relation to the pelvis, so the sacrum can tilt forward to the ileus, or yeah, right. the ilium could tilt backwards, and both of those would produce a nutation of the sacrum relative to the ilium. So Although the way you tell me, the way I've been using it is nutation, I think the way I learned it, nutation applies to the sacrum. Yeah. And then other terms apply to the ilium. But at the yeah. joint surface, it might be the same motion. Right, So exactly. like nutation at the sacrum would be a posterior rotation, a posterior torsion of the ilium. Right. Same yeah. thing. I, when I was looking up those terms sometime years ago, I ran into an, uh, and this may be total, I mean, this is totally off the the topic here, but I ran into something <laughs> that was in reference to the moon. <laughs> Um, the term nutation, when I looked it up, had something to do with the, the tilting or angular facing of the moon as well. So um, I can't remember exactly what that was, but yeah, look that up. Yeah. I want to yeah. know. You know what yeah. we need? We need like a geek checker. Oh, that'd be great. We need yeah. like someone who just rings this little bell and holds it like says, wait, you guys are just going way down that rabbit, That's right. that geek rabbit hole. Time to pull yeah. it out. I don't know if we're there yet, but uh, no, let's keep going. Yeah. Well, hey, I tell you what, why don't we take a break for our halftime sponsor and we'll go look up this thing about the moon and then we'll have to come back and see what we find out about it. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, okay. This episode is sponsored by Handspring Publishing. When I was looking for a publisher for my own Advanced Myofascial Techniques book, I was lucky enough to have two offers, one from a giant international media subsidiary and the other from Handspring, a small publisher 
up in Scotland, run by four lovely people. And I'm so glad I went with my gut and chose Handspring because not only did they help me make the books that I really wanted to share, but their catalog has emerged since that time as one of the leading collections of professional-level books written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and as they say, all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. Thanks, Handspring. Yes, Handspring has done a great job of expanding offerings for the movement and manual therapy professions. Their author list reads like a who's who for many of the leading thinkers in our fields. So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com and browse this excellent catalog. When you find the gems that you must have, use the code TTP at checkout for a discount. Thanks, Handspring. All right, so we are uh, back from our halftime break, and we did uh, take a moment to look. I didn't read this whole thing right now, but um, I, if for anybody who wants to geek out on this, I did find a, wiki, a Wikipedia page on astronomical nutation. I'm looking at that, too. So, we yeah, ended up so, in the same uh, place. Phenomenon which causes the orientation of the axis of rotation of a spinning astronomical object to vary over time. So, Yeah, nodding. It nods. Yeah. The moon nods a little bit in its orbit, so does the Earth, and... So does the sacrum. The debate is how much and if that really matters anyway. Yeah. So fascinating. So well, back to this um, this whole process with our, our movement of the sacrum. So we have a slight degree of movement that happens there. Also, the difficulty of uh, evaluating this. So uh, here's a question that I want to ask because it comes up, obviously, for me a great deal as well. Since we have found a lack of reliability and validity in many of these evaluation procedures for uh, trying to and uh, attempting to identify sacroiliac joint dysfunction, should we do any of them? I mean, should should we do them at all? Is there any benefit to them? What do you what do you think about that? You know, I struggled with this a lot uh, because I was trained fairly, you know, conventionally, uh, a lot of influence from Greenman, a lot of influence from uh, various osteopathic traditions. We learned the very complicated models of right on right, left on right, upslip, downslip, sacral dynamics, and used them a lot and taught them a lot. And then when it came time to actually teach a, a dedicated workshop on the SI joints, I realized, you know, what what I'm really doing in practice and what really seems to help isn't that complicated. Mm-hmm. So there's some very complicated protocols and diagnostic models for assessing that motion, large or small, whatever you think. But it turns out that in practice, what I was doing was pretty simple. So I end up, uh, I end up doing what turns out the research happens to support, lucky me, I look for sensitivity in mm-hmm. the pelvis at the SI joint through a series of of tests. They are modeled after traditional orthopedic tests, but I'm not looking to try to measure movement as much as gauge the client's sensitivity, their perception of movement. And I do go after, I do follow in Damon's footsteps who said, you know, if it's different left and right, they're more likely to have pain. Turns out mm-hmm. that's true. It's only true if they're pregnant. Or it's only been studied if they're pregnant. It hasn't been ruled in or ruled out for non-pregnant people. Yeah. So something that you said there made me think of something else that I wanted to bring up that we we haven't really touched on yet because we've been talking pretty much along the lines of skeletal mechanics of the SI joint. But um, there's been quite a bit of uh, emphasis, especially in the uh, work that Vleeming had done on uh, some of the uh, the work that Tom Myers had done, and I'm sure you're very familiar with this stuff from your background in the structural integration world of the, the fascial connections 
across this region uh, with the numerous different tissues that may transmit tensile loads across the area by the very fact that these tissues span across that particular region. Um, so uh, what, anything you would want to relay about that, you, because you were talking about the the treatment protocols or the treatment strategies that we're using, and it seems like as, as uh, manual therapy practitioners, many of us are focusing a lot more attention on soft tissues than we are on attempting to move uh, bony positions or anything like that. So that mm -hmm. might be more relevant for some of these things. Yeah, yes, I, I hear you. I mean, you're right. It, uh, we're talking probably most of our audience is a soft tissue practitioner. However, in my approach, uh, I'm doing it the other way. We're looking at bony movement. But yeah, I'm familiar with those models of soft tissue crossing the joints and how they might influence it. And there's probably something to it. But uh, I, uh, boy, that's that's a big topic. Uh, I don't include them that much in my treatment model because um, I have a few problems with them conceptually. Mm -hmm. To think that a long, well, I don't have a problem with uh, long fascial connections crossing joints and affecting them. I don't have any problem with that at all. I just don't, uh, boy, <laughs> yeah, I don't go for the line thing. I don't uh -huh. go for the line thing right Tell off me the about bat. That. Well, okay. you know, on average, 30% of a muscle's fascia <laughs> connects to a fascia nearby. There's, it's mm -hmm. so interconnected. It's an interconnected network where 70% of a skeletal muscle's force goes to a bone. 30% of it goes out to neighboring fascia. So if you start to trace that out in lines, it pretty quickly gets distributed. It's more like branches than lines. Mm -hmm. So in my... So, um can yeah. I pause for a second there? Because I wanted to, uh, I've been trying to track this down a little bit, and I'd, I'd really love to delve into this a little bit more of where you've gotten this thing about the 30% of the force transmitted <laughs> out that way. And is that true uh, in most all muscles, or is that only true in certain ones? Or where? That's a great question. Where do you see that? I remember it as an average. I'm happy to dig up that reference for yeah. you. But I remember it is an average, and I'm sure it varies uh -huh. muscle by muscle. But let's say as an average through the body. Yeah. So no, I'm not trying to trace long long lines past multiple joints. But let's say it, it's valid as an average. You know, yeah. by the time you go over two joints, you've already distributed quite a bit of that force. So that, yeah, that makes a great deal of sense. Uh, yeah. And and I would think that there are places maybe if you're just saying, you know, the first local connection has a pretty good bit of capability of transmitting some tensile loads. For example, like the, the hamstrings being a very powerful muscle group Absolutely. and the, the fibers blending in with the sacrotuberous ligament has a good chance of affecting SI joint mechanics by hamstring tightness. But Makes sense something to me. that's coming from the foot uh, and has a lot of other stopping points where it's tethered along the way is going to have a lot less or a lot more dissipation of that tensile force. Yeah, tethered. Yeah, right. Tethered even connected in functional ways. This the force does yeah. get distributed around the whole limb and out in different ways and you yeah. know there's been some very elegant mapping of lines and that they've been able to find them in dissection but I don't it's not a model that I use in my thinking let's put it yeah. that way. As much right. as you know a global picture of force transmission going out into a larger network of connective tissues. Yeah. Yeah, not to I mean call me out of the geek rabbit hole if I'm going there too much but that hamstrings uh, fibers going into S, a sacral tubus ligament thing mm -hmm. shows it again that's another 30% uh, factor where yeah. the you know looking to see when you can find fibers they tend to be more superficial so they're probably the fibers aren't transmitting as much force 
and that's only in 30% of the people. So in the other 70%, there's no direct fibers from hamstrings into sacrotubus ligaments. But they both attach to the same bone and along the same angle. So through the connections of the bone, they're clearly part, yeah. probably part of that, you know, force closure of the SI joint. Yeah. And um, that's another term that we run across a good bit in this uh, discussion. And maybe we can just sort of um, break that out a little bit, too, for our, our listeners who may come across this, the term of force closure and form closure yeah. as, as concepts there. Um, elaborate on that a little bit. Uh, this is Vleeming again. Force yeah. closure is a, a motor or myofascial or muscular forces acting on a joint to lock it into position to make it more stable. Uh, f uh, form closure is just the shape of the bones and the structure of the ligaments and things like that, allowing a position that gives the joint stability. So we might think, for example, that if something is a a problem that is a result of a form closure, meaning a, a bony structural, either positional or, an, or a positional or anatomical factor, it may be a, a bit more challenging for us to make an intervention that's going to be uh, making a significant change than if something is a forced closure that is, let's say, maybe generated more by soft tissue. Would you say that's accurate? Well, if, again, if you're thinking like a massage therapist, maybe. Mm -hmm. But let's think a little bigger for a second. You're saying that if I if my main tool is relaxing things, then maybe if it's a force closure problem, I don't have many options. I actually don't know. I don't know if our main tool is relaxing things, first of all, mm -hmm. even as massage therapists. I think there's a lot of effects we have on pain and sensitivity. Yeah. And even, let's go back to the biomechanical, biomechanical model. Leeming's thing was that the soft tissues could inhibit force. Uh, form closure. I'm, I'm making sure I'm saying it right now. They could, uh, tight structures could inhibit the joint's full motion and not allow it to essentially make itself stable. Mm -hmm. So his yeah. model was if you can get things mobile a lot of time in the right direction, and his one was posterior rotation of the ilium on the sacrum, that would make the joint feel more stable because you'd be relying more on the bones and ligaments at that point. Yeah. So, so there's, I mean, so there's some biomechanical arguments for how we can actually help force and form closure, and then mm -hmm. there's the whole debate about are those particularly relevant? Because there's other models that say it's not the biomechanics, it's the sensitivity, you could say, or the ways that we're protecting the joint that have more to do with pain anyway. Yeah, and that's exact. I was going to bring that up because we just had touched on that, and we have been sort of um, couching the majority of our discussion within the 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 lens, the biomechanical lens of perspective here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there obviously is uh, a number of other things that could be very relevant and pertinent factors associated with this. There was uh, something that I ran across here, and I put in my notes. I'll see if I can dig that up in a moment here of uh, talking about you know uh, movement system challenges and kinesiophobia, you know, the fear of movement that people have when they have some kind of pain sensation in there and how that a lot of the SI joint pain simply may be more result of some of the those other types of factors and, and not necessarily a, a purely biomechanical thing in many of these cases. Yep. Yep. Uh, maybe all of them. It's hard to tease it out. Maybe all pain yeah. has some of that in there. Yeah. So it's hard to yeah. say this is biomechanical pain, this is uh, psychological pain, this is social pain, they're probably got, you know, they're all in there for every pain. Yeah. You know, another interesting thing that I ran across, and this was in a, a kinesiology book, I believe it was, um, that made me ponder the question about how, 
how important and dominating is the whole uh, idea of the the biomechanical model of SI joint pain and the the whole you're looking at um, hypermobility or hypomobility issues. Uh, in this particular book, they were referencing a couple of studies that said, um, let's see if I can get this, they were saying 85% of asymptomatic people over the age of 60 yeah. have some degree of degenerative changes in the SI joint, meaning you know yeah. arthritic changes or some type of de- degeneration in there. And by the eighth decade, about 10% of the population have fused SI joints. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, that, right. That was kind of mind-blowing because... It is. Uh, you know, <laughs> Uh, granted, you can assume that most of the people in their age decade are not really moving around that much, but a lot of them are moving around quite a good bit. And it's like if if they're that uh, a pretty significant number of people can have their SI joints fused, it really begs the question of of how relevant is a lot of all this. Um, I'm not going to say obsession, but you know, extensive yeah. focus on the mechanics and movement. Things well, and it turns out that P- SI pain diminishes after a certain age too even Mm. though movement also diminishes so does pain so that's the argument that's made in linking movement with pain it turns out that you know people that end up having less movement as they get older have less pain too but then there's cases where the opposite's true so it's impossible to say and i'm i want to keep circling back to what's practical because it, you know, we can question any of these things and end up with a whole lot of questions. You can say, listen, the more hypermobile it is, it's also, you know, the more painful. That's the conventional view. Well, that doesn't hold up either. So what do I do? If it's not about it being tight, if it's not about being loose, what does that leave me with? Yeah, so let's get back to that. It's sort of like that's the, the $10,000 question. It's like what everybody's been sitting here waiting 20 minutes for us to <laughs> answer the question. What am I supposed to be doing? So what... What do you think um, are are kind of the the most favorable current um, strategies? And I'm not saying obviously there's one answer for everything, no. but what are your current thoughts on on sort of best approaches in the majority of these cases? Well, I'll tell you my bias, and again, I can't say for everybody listening, but again, in our trainings, the, the approach I take, it's about proprioceptive refinement. It's about helping people feel better in their joints. And mm-hmm. that involves feeling them better, having a more accurate uh, perceptive ability of what's happening at their joints. So yeah. if you can actually help people have better body awareness, essentially, a lot of times that normalizes pain. It's, it's counterintuitive. Yeah. But the, the, but the better people feel their bodies, the better they feel in their bodies. Well, too, and again, this is a bit of conjecture because we don't have really any good evidence about this yet, but there was some, I can't remember where this was that I had originally come upon this. It may have been in some of uh, Butler and Mosley's writings when they were talking about cortical smudging, which is the sort of lack of clarity in the um, brain maps of Uh our bodies, of where everything is and how. And they were saying that there is uh, possibly some indication that chronic pain conditions um, enhance cortical smudging, meaning Absolutely. they so they yeah. sort of make the the body map less clear and less specific about what's going on. And that, to me, kind of like I made this jump. I know it may be a little early to make the jump, but just thinking, well, I do think that there's a great deal of benefit in soft tissue manual therapy for, like you said, enhancing proprioceptive awareness. That's and right. might that, in fact sharpen those cortical maps and that might be a big part of what our beneficial um, effects of treatment are 
in what we're doing much more so than some of the drilling down into the specifics of feeling like we're you know elongating this particular tissue or making that thing have no adhesion or whatever we've been saying that we've been doing all this time. Precisely. Yeah, we're refining people's mm -hmm. brain maps. We're also increasing their ability to deal with signal. We're, mm -hmm. we're doing some descending modulation, we're doing some de-threatening, we're doing some good things with our touch that basically means that even if there is some irritation in the tissues that are generating a nociceptive signal, it's not as problematic as it was before the work we do. Yeah. So, uh, you know, um, a lot of it is just finding ways, I think, to, in, like you said, enhance the, the proprioceptive awareness enhance the felt sense in there and finding all kinds of things just to sort of uh, wake wake everything maybe back up a little bit um, and that that could in, a, in and of itself be a really particularly helpful strategy more so than than kind of chasing down the rabbit hole of saying like well am I improving uh, sacral nutation range of motion by X amount or am I you know getting this pelvic angle fixed here to be back to normal or something. Yeah, and I want to I want to hear what you suggest or what you do in your approach, but there's one more thing around that line is that I do use mobility techniques. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's I do actually feel for things that move and things that don't and yeah. while I'm monitoring the client's perception and this is for sure their sensitivity, I'll encourage them to move more in the ways that they don't. Yeah. Because that, a couple of things might be happening there. One is it's giving a sensation that someone uh, can feel and reset around, so it's normalizing sensation. It might be hydrating the joints or the structures, and there's some evidence that that could be helpful for nociception. But mostly it's a way that for people to f uh, feel differences left and right. And it's some, it's, it goes back to this idea that we, if we increase people's awareness of their body in a non-noxious way, then things hurt less. Yeah, and what you said too there was particularly interesting, and I, I you know, I agree with all of your uh, sort of treatment strategy ideas here. And I would uh, just add that uh, I think a lot of what we tend to be doing, if we're taking that kind of perspective, is the the motion palpation that we might engage in, or even the you know the treatment processes and things that we're doing in a variety of different ways have yes. both diagnostic and treatment um, components to them, because mm -hmm. we are both feeling for how does this feel like it's moving is this moving freely is this moving the way it should and the very act of touching and calling um, proprioceptive awareness to that area even with some little thing that we might do right could really enhance the the shift in the neurological system to to get that area beginning to move more freely and then reinforcing that a lot with the client we touched on this a little bit in the very first episode when we were talking about you know both of our backgrounds in, in looking at things through a, a psychological lens of, you know, how does the person's felt sense? And, you know, what do you do in the treatment room when you encourage somebody about, hey, this feels like it's moving more freely. Do you feel that moving more freely there? And that that positive encouragement um, about the movement is, is a really beneficial uh, aspect of making those neurological changes as well. De-threatening sensation, de-threatening movement. Yeah. That's what our work does quite a bit, pretty effectively, too. Yeah. yeah. We, we should have an episode about language sometimes, too, because there, you know, the studies we read had a couple of recommendations around language, like yeah. they're recommending not to use the term instability with athletes because right. it could be uh, disturbing, could be in exactly. itself a problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and... Um, 
there's a massage therapist up in Minnesota, a gentleman named Jason Erickson, who coined a great term that's been uh, sort of adopted by lots of folks, lots of us, who, because I think it's a great term. Uh, he talks about trying to enhance yes-eception with his clients. Nice. So meaning the opposite of, of no ceception, That's all right. of those things that are producing the, and there's all kinds of things that might enhance the yes exception, you know, whether that's both language, that's, that's touch, that's palpation, it's movement. It's all those factors that do the very opposite of perpetuating no susceptive drivers uh, within the system. Yep. Yep. That sounds right. So, yeah. Well, did we solve the, uh, the sacroiliac problem for the world then today? Well, I think, I mean, I don't know because it's it's an ongoing debate. But yeah. certainly I want to cook it down to practical things people can do. So, yeah. you know, just helping your client feel better, helping them feel their bodies better, helping with movement, helping them be less afraid of what's happening there. Even uh, a little more open-mindedness, like uh, statements about, you know, there's no evidence that instability relates to pain in people that aren't pregnant. That's a factual yeah. statement that could be de-threatening. Now, it's, you know, yeah. we don't want to go arguing with people about their beliefs at all. And that's yeah. why we need a whole episode to talk about this language thing. But anything we can yeah. do to help people ha and entertain the possibility or have an open mind about their symptoms is helpful. Yeah. So, and I think the, the an important takeaway from this, too, is... Um, and I want to backtrack a little bit in that we have talked about some of the, the challenges with validity and reliability with some of the traditional evaluation methods and things like that. I also don't want to throw out the idea that I think it's valuable and important for us to understand sacroiliac biomechanics, mm. even with the the fact that there are some um, uncertainties and inaccuracies in terms of the way we have looked at things in the past. I still think it really helps to understand uh, a great deal about the groundwork of the functional mechanics of that region and then overlay that with the other approaches that we've taken here in order to really make them the most effective. That's what we're sorting through in our field, I think, is like which is the baby, which is the bathwater? Are we throwing it all right. out or what are we keeping here? Yeah. And I'm, I happen to be a biomechanics nut myself. Yeah. Been looking always to translate it into things that really work in practice. Yeah. So... Well, great. I, wonderful um, chatting with you today about sacroiliac um, dilemmas and things. I hope that our listeners picked up a few maybe pearls and tidbits that might be helpful in their practice from that as well. And since this is such a complex topic, I have a feeling we will probably revisit this in some future episodes as well. And we'll chase down chase down a few other rabbit rabbit holes with that. Yeah, let us know, listeners, your questions, your thoughts. You know, if there's things you want us to dive into in this topic or others, just get in touch. Yeah, and in the in in the meantime, uh, look up seeing what happens with force closure and form closure of the moon. How about that? <laughs> that sounds good. Okay. Since it's got nutational properties, we'll look at that as well. So, all right, thanks everybody for um, hanging out with us today on the Thinking Practitioner. We'll be back again, and we'll see you next time. Thanks to our sponsors, you guys really make it possible for Whitney and I to have a good time talking to each other and share this with everybody else. And you can stop by our website for show notes, information on uh, CE credits for the show, and any extras that we have available. And that can be found on our podcast website at www.thethinkingpractitioner.com. Until where can people find you on the web? 
that would be advanced-trainings.com, advanced-trainings.com, or my name, Till Luca. How about you, Whitney? Where are people going to find you? And they can find me at the academyofclinicalmassage.com, academyofclinicalmassage.com, and also following on Twitter at Whitlow, W-H-I-T-L-O-W-E, um, and on Facebook as well under my name, or the Academy of Clinical Massage on Facebook. Nice. If you got questions, just email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media. And please don't forget to, uh, if you can, uh, take a moment to rate us on iTunes or wherever else you listen to your podcast because it does help other people find the show as well. Thanks, everybody. All right, sounds good. We'll see you next time. <laughs>